0: Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant.
1: Thanks, James. Good morning, everybody. My name is Shane, and uh, I'm going to tell you something that you already know this morning, and something I don't think requires a whole lot of argument, and that is that life can be hard sometimes, uh, life. Can be hard. Uh, I suspect we all know that. If anyone wants to refute that or you're not convinced, I'll do you a deal. Um, you, I give you full permission, go on your Facebook now and enjoy uh, until you hit the first frowny face or the thing that makes you want a frowny face. And then when you get there, come back and join in with the rest of us who already knew that life can be hard. Life can be hard, it's full of all kinds of challenges. And so we have this series that starts today called The Valleys of Life. And what we're hoping to do is, in this series, see that when life throws up challenges, it's God's grace that walks us through the deep valleys. So I hope that it will be a blessing for all of us. In fact, I moved to pray about that, so let me do that. Father God, we do pray that uh, as we consider some of the challenges and whatever things might sit with any one of us this morning, we just want to ask, Lord, that by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, you will attune our eyes to you, your good ways, your deep love for us. Help us to see you with us in the valleys. Help us to see that you are the God of all things. You are the God of Psalm 23 who walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And so, Father God, as we open this, uh, this series of teaching this morning, we pray that you might uh, strengthen us in our faith to renew us in our hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so... We know that life can get hard and there are a few questions that seem to repeat when life gets hard. Uh, Why is one of them, you know, something really rough comes your way, and why, why me? Uh, One of the other questions that I think repeats itself when life gets hard, particularly if you're someone of faith, is you, you might ask, where are you God? Others might ask of you where is your God? One of the favourite taunts of the evil one is to attack with, so where's your God now? As you find yourself in the valley, that is one of the evil one's favourite distractions to say, well, since all of this is going on, where's your God who loves you so much, that you give to, that you worship, where is he now? Friends, the truth is where you look to find that God is foundational to your faith or foundational to your lack of faith. And so this morning as we have a look at this passage from Colossians 1, I think it's going to show us where to look in those seasons of where is your God and it's going to show us why we should look there. Now I'm going to do something this morning that kind of breaks the rules of preaching or any kind of teaching 101. I have six points. So if you're taking notes, you'll need a one to six down the page. But to try and redeem myself, I'm going to give you six points of where and why to look. Then I'm going to see how we can summarise those six points down to two points. And then, because I've sinned so greatly, we'll go down to one point. Because you won't remember the six, but hopefully one of them might resonate with somebody. You ready to go? Yes. I love that. That's cool. That's really cool because I noticed this morning that a lot of the ministry staff are sitting in the front row and we look positively Pentecostal this morning and I think that's just so cool. And so I'm I'm looking out for a little bit of, yes, Shane, that's good, Shane. Amen, Shane. You don't have to do that. Anyway, point one. Look to the sun when you're looking for God. You see, in the valleys of life, in those hard times where you might be inclined to ask yourself or be accused, where is your God? It can be difficult when you're dealing with an invisible God. My love language is physical touch. Once in a while I wish God my father would just give me a hug. You might have an entirely different love language but sometimes, nonetheless, it can be tricky when you're dealing with the invisible God. Where is he? Point one is, look to the sun ...when you're looking for God. Why do I say this? Well, because Colossians 1.15 tells us that the sun... ...look at this beautiful language. The sun is the image, the thing you see, of the thing you don't see. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Let's clear something up before it trips us up. When this passage speaks of the sun being the firstborn of all creation... This is not speaking in terms of a a, a temporal order of he got born then you got born then the next one got born and that's not how this works. In fact, that gave rise to an ancient heresy that's perpetuated today by sects like Jehovah's Witnesses who don't understand that Jesus is co-eternal, he is God. This isn't about an order so much as a, a different kind of, about a position. As firstborn, he is supreme. As firstborn, he is the heir. As firstborn, he has the office of holding all the things that his father owns. So all of creation looks and says, where's God's stuff? It's in him. This isn't about a sequential, this is about an office. And he is the firstborn, he is the heir, he is the ruler, he reigns supreme. As ruler who reigns supreme, he is the image of God. When you want to know how to spot God in a lineup. You want to look for the God who bears a striking resemblance to Jesus of Nazareth. Otherwise, you've got a phony. Now, this is an important thing to start with because life has its ups and downs. And it's easy to make an error. It's easy in a mountaintop moment to do what we sing in some hymns to count your blessings, name them one by one. A good thing to do. But your blessings aren't God. And so sometimes in the moments of great blessing and great prosperity or what have you, you might say, yes, God is with me. And if you do that, if you see God in the blessing itself, then I wonder, do you suffer from spiritual blindness in the valley? Hello, how are you doing? Uh, In the the valley below, do you still see that same God? Where is my God now? Because I don't see the blessings and that's where he makes himself manifest to me. Others have gone a different way, have sort of thought, well, in my humble state, because God doesn't like the proud, I'll know God is with me when I'm suffering and when I'm down low and all that sort of stuff. And so if I find myself in a season of blessing, then surely I've strayed from God and things are bad. Ah, you are the cutest little cutie pie ever. Uh, (laughs) You're cute too. Um, (laughs) Clearly, I've strayed from God because my life is going too good now. I feel guilty about it and all this sort of stuff because we're looking to see God in the circumstance. And that can lead to a serious case of spiritual blindness. But instead, look to the sun. When you're looking at Jesus, you know you've found God. One of my favourite verses in the scriptures is Romans 5, 8 that says, God demonstrates his love in this, that Christ died whilst we're still sinners. God, dem- God says, if you look down this narrow corridor of what happens to my son, you'll see how I feel about you. He doesn't say God demonstrates his love in this, that when life is going great, you know God loves you. When life is going bad, you know God hates you. He says, if you want to know how I feel about you, look at, look at my son and what he did. Don't be confused by the mountaintops nor the valleys. Step one, where is your God? Look to the son, the Lord Jesus when you're looking for God. Better crack on. Point number two. The Son is the creator of all things. Colossians 1.16 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Because the Son is creator of all things, and that's a comprehensive list, that means there is nothing on this earth, nor big nor small, that he does not own, nor have a design and plan for. And so let me visit one of the most controversial debates in Christianity today. Can you pray for a parking spot? I say yes. Did anyone ever go into emotional crisis over a parking spot? Yeah, they did. Probably not just because of the parking spot, but a a bunch of stuff adding up and that can be the catalyst for the last bit. Do you suspect that if I, selfish and sinful as I can be, I'm down at Unundara Woolies as I often am trying to get a parking spot and uh, I start praying for it. And you like, Shane, you took God's attention. Now he's not going to hear my prayer about a significant relationship issue. Do you think that might happen? Or wear out God's ears? Distract him when he should have been, like, guiding something important. You can pray for a parking spot. You won't wear God out. Pray in all things. See... The point I'm trying to make here is that because the Son is creator of all things and has a design and a plan for all things, there is nothing outside of his scope. And I say that because I've spent too many times in too many churches hearing too many people say to me, this is going on for me, and I go, wow, we should pray about that. I'll let people know. No, 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 don't ask anyone to pray for me because bigger things are going on for others. You you think God's going to run out of listening capacity? He's not. He's not. And so you can pray for your parking spot with perspective, and you can pray for your significant relationship crisis, your health scare, or for a loved one who is in danger or for world peace. The sun is creator of all things and has a design for it all. In your valley, yeah he's got a plan for that, too. You don't need to compare and contrast your valley with someone else's to work out whether it's a prayer point. The sun's got a plan. Point three. The Son is the eternal and sovereign God. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's important for us to have a clear idea of who this God, this, 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 this Son, this Jesus is. And the Son language is, an, is, is a good place for us to start because you will know, gathered here, you don't need to hang around church too long to know that the Christian church says Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. But sometimes we mistake what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. Ready? Hear me out before someone calls me a heretic. To say Jesus is the Son of God doesn't make him God. To say Jesus is the Son of God doesn't make him divine. It's actually not a divine title. It's a human title. Hence, it's a title that was also given to David. Hence, it's a title that was said of Israel. Hence, regardless of your gender, it's a title that's said of you. You are a son of God. Jesus is the son of God. What does that mean? It means as the son of God, he is the anointed one. He is the anointed human. He is the Christ. He is the one through whom God manifests his reign over all people, over all creation. It's a human title. He's very human and he's a very particular human. But here's the thing. Not only is Jesus the son of God, Jesus is God the son. And now we're talking about a different nature. Jesus as God the son is divine. Jesus as God the son is everything that sometimes we try to claim with Jesus as the son of God. Jesus is fully divine let me tell you why this matters it matters on both sides with this son of god and this god the son uh, many of you won't know but for the first 35 plus years of my life i had a significant red birthmark on my chin and every now and then someone notices a little scar and goes oh what'd you do i, go, I had surgery so i had it removed a couple of years ago at my doctor's uh, recommendation now as a kid I didn't like the red birthmark on my chin. And I said to my parents, why have I got this thing? You know they said to me? They were trying to be encouraging because they liked it. They said, well, Jesus did a painting. You want to make a kid mad? (laughs) Tell him that someone else's kid messed with his face. So I'm thinking, well, I'm the son of my parents and I'm a kid. Jesus is the son of his parents, God and whoever else. And how come God's such a bad parent that he lets his kid go running around with the paint set while he's making me and messes with my face? Silly God and naughty Jesus. I hope he got in big trouble for that. But this is how we can be sometimes. We don't understand that when we're dealing with Jesus, we're not dealing with a naughty kid with the paint set. You're dealing with the fullness of God. I want you to know that the man from Nazareth is enough for us to contemplate when we're thinking about God. Uh, I was actually in Israel uh, about seven years ago. Mind-blowing experience. Perhaps one of the most mind-blowing moments was uh, seeing the house of Peter Now this is said to be one of the most certain archaeological spaces. So I'm standing in a church, it's like a glass-bottom boat, this church, because it's built over the top of Peter's house and it has a glass-bottom, so you can look down and see the thing you actually travelled halfway around the world to see. So you look down and there's this room that is about the size of my bedroom. That's Peter's house, they say. And my mind has to comprehend that a human being stood in that room, ate in that room, slept possibly in that room, ate in that room, did life group in that room and that human being happened to also be the author of life and the creator of all things. That blows your mind when you think, how could all of him be in that little room? <laughs> all of him once dwelt in that little baby. Amazing. Amazing. What I'm trying to say is when you deal with Jesus, you're dealing with the fullness of God. You don't need lightning on top of Mount Oosley. You don't need uh, all kinds of special supernatural things to happen. You've found God when you've found Jesus. But in the same great and glorious way, when you find Jesus, you've found someone who gets you because this is the son of God. This is a human like you. He gets our experiences. Sometimes that's been missed in the valleys. Oh, let me illustrate through church history. Sometimes Jesus has seemed as God the Son, so supreme, so godlike, like so uh, transcendent, dare I say, so far away that we look for a go between someone more like me. So rather than talk to Jesus, I'll talk to his mum. Or rather than talk to Jesus, I'll talk to one of the saints. Or rather than Jesus, I'll assume that my pastor has some kind of special powers. They don't. They don't. Because Jesus is a bit too unlike me. The beauty of this is the Son is the eternal and sovereign. He is both fully God, fully man. So he gets you and he has the power of God. Point four, and I've fallen behind. He is the head of the church, just as it says in 118. You can read, I won't read it. He is the head of the church. And what that tells me is that God doesn't mind when some assembly is required. Because the church did not come pre-packaged with perfect little people clicked together like Lego. Uh, no, indeed, the church, what the church is, is an assembly, it's a gathering. And God took scattered people of all backgrounds, of all different nations and different spiritual states and different interests and whatever, and he brought us together and he made this assembly. He did the assembling with imperfect parts. He has made something that he calls his bride, or better still, to use this language, he calls his own body. Can you imagine walking through a junkyard, putting something together and saying, that is good enough, I'd call it my body. And I'd love it like my body. Well, that's what God has done. For God, some assembly, he's happy to do that. But here's the thing that blows me away even further, and it's worth remembering when the valleys come and you think, where is God? For me, the church is one of the most powerful proofs that God exists. Because I think you know that for 2,000 years... The church has been under attack, under persecution and it remains under persecution to this day where people have tried to crush and kill and destroy and make this thing that we're enjoying now no more. And strangely enough, it seems the harder you press on the church, (laughs) that's where it seems to grow. That can only happen under the hand of God but the thing that really blows me away is not the external pressures on the church but the dysfunction within the church. Sorry, family, but let's call a spade a spade about ourselves. We're a wildly dysfunctional people sometimes. That doesn't mean we're not also a great and glorious and loving community, but we can get awfully dysfunctional. Please don't ask me to read the list of dysfunction internally in the church. We're aware of it. We participate in it. We mess with each other. And so despite the best efforts internally and and externally of humanity, the church prevails and some will tell you, oh, and the church is shrinking, people are giving up faith. Yeah. Maybe here for now, but not globally. Not at all. The church is thriving. Jesus continues to bring disciples into his church at a, at a massive race. This thing's kicking off, which is a little behind at the moment. We'll catch up. It says to me, for this dysfunctional attack Thing to still exist, surely there's a God who is happy to be involved when the assembly is required and when he needs to make it happen. I want to know that in the valleys. Fifth, and we're nearly there, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now here firstborn acts a little broader than it did last time. Jesus as the firstborn from the dead is not only supreme over all things, just like before firstborn means he's the boss, here it actually is temporal as well, because Jesus was dead. See, death is that big boundary marker that stops life. But Jesus was the first of the resurrection. On Easter Sunday, he came out of the grave to die no more. He is the new creation. He is the new life. That's who he is, and guess what? He's the first one there. And he's first, because there will be seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths, sixth, and somewhere in there is us. He is the firstborn. He's the first one to break that boundary of death. Here's what blows me away about him being firstborn from the dead. And here's why it matters in the valleys. He embodies both despair and hope. Why? Because he was dead. Jesus isn't like, you know, in the royal heavenly carriage, you know, like this sailing past the earth. No, he is the one who knew what it was to be betrayed, what it was to be abandoned, what it was to be stripped, beaten and killed. Oh, he knows despair. He embodies despair. He gets the valleys. He's also the one who on Easter Sunday was risen gloriously and has ascended to sit at the right hand of God in glory with angels praising him. So he can be supreme in all things, that he has supremacy. What that says to me is Jesus is the one who I will recognise as supreme in the valley of despair because he's been there and overcome it. And I'll recognise him as supreme on the mountaintops of wonderful life highs and glory because he lives there too. Supreme in all things and full of hope for us as the firstborn from the dead. Point six. The sun is gravitational. What does shame mean? Let me show you. The God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all the things, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What does gravity come from? Gravity comes when there is a huge mass like the sun or like the earth. The thing that blows me away about Jesus, the Jesus who stood in that tiny little room I told you about, is that God was pleased for his fullness. God, who you can read about in Isaiah 6, 4, who the angels cover their eyes, cover their feet, and can't even look at his splendor as the very hem of his robe fills the whole temple and smoke rises, and he's just too much. And a baby in a manger... That's some serious mass in one space. That brings gravity. That brings weight. That brings a pulling power. Now let me tell you about the pulling power. Read these words carefully. And through him, him being Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. This bit's worth the price of admission. God, through the gravity of Jesus, is pulling all things to himself. For some years out of high school, I worked in a bike shop, retail store. At the end of the day, you reconcile the till. The way that works is you hit a button on the cash register and it spits out a list of the transactions for the day and how much money should be in the till. You have that there. You count up the money in the till and all your FPOS and stuff like that and hopefully it lines up. Here's what you don't do. You don't count up all the money and the F-plus and stuff like that. Yeah, okay, we've got this much here and then write what that is on the docket. This has to match that. You don't call that to match this. Does that make sense? Well, sometimes in the valleys, when we're thinking, where is God? And you almost want to call out, you're like, God, come to me. Bring yourself to me for I'm alienated from you and I need your help. We're calling for God to be reconciled to us, come to me. But the beauty of God is that he has this gravity in Christ that he brings us to him. Even in the valleys, you can count on God pulling us to him. It might take a while. I don't promise everything to be happy today. But be assured that by his gravity, he is pulling you to his glory. And again, how does he pull us to his glory? By making peace, making shalom, making wholeness through his blood shed on the cross. God has the gravity in Christ and gravity does the work. Right? I'm not pushing myself into the earth. The earth is pulling me into it. The gravity does the work. In Christ, God is pulling us to his very self and he's doing all the work. So let me assure you that if you are in the depths and you're thinking, I wish God would come to me, know that he is pulling and he is bringing you to himself. The sun has gravity. And there you go, you made six points that you'll never remember, so let me summarise them to two. But hopefully two that mean a little more. He is creator and he is redeemer. Jesus the Son, is the creator, so be assured, even in the valley, the creator is not the destroyer. The creator is not the taker, the creator is the giver. The creator is the one with the plan to give, the plan to build. He's not trying to destroy you. He is, Jesus the son, the redeemer. Because he is the redeemer, the one that buys back, the one that claims, you can know even in the valley, the redeemer is not the discarder. Isn't that our great fear? God's forgotten me, and this deepest moment tossed me out, discarded. That would be completely contrary to his character. He is creator, he is redeemer, he is not destroyer, he is not discarder. Let me summarise down to one. Here is the point. Jesus is the source of full restoration of creation of which I am a part Here's what I mean. In Jesus, we find more than repair. We find restoration as God the Son, the Redeemer, brings all things created into perfect alignment with his perfect order as creator. He is not simply trying to make my trouble and hardship go away and leave me the same. Leave me the same, lost and looking for God and thinking that I've found him because now life is easy so that I would think that I found the invisible God in the image of temporary comfort. No, and hear me, I mean to say this, God wills my troubles. Yes, the sovereign Lord wills my troubles in order that I may not lose sight of him, in order that I, part of the creation, would be changed as a fallen creature in order that I and all of creation may be restored for an eternity of perfection with him and not just a finite time of satisfaction because there's no trouble. Looking to a happy life as if it were God himself. No, that is not the creator-redeemer's plan. As an aside, let me share with you, MacRindle Research one of the leading uh, demographic research companies in this country. Uh, Their leader, Mark McCrindle, recently recently led a survey of Australians and they asked this question, what would cause you to look further at the claims of faith or spiritual solutions and the number two response, experiencing personal trauma? It seems God's plan works. He brings us through these seasons so that we will not worship the idols of comfort, but instead that we might reach out and find him. And it seems it works. You see, if I will look to Jesus, I'm able to find God. And when I find God, I know the hope of restoration. And when I know the hope of restoration, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I find myself less often telling my God just how how deep my valleys are and more regularly telling my valleys just how high and mighty and great my God is. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that in him we find you, that in him we have a perfect answer to the question, where is your God? That in him your love is demonstrated, That in him, your power is revealed. That in him, we are gathered as your people. That in him, we are not discarded, but redeemed. That in him, we are not destroyed, but created and recreated. And so, Father God, for each and every person here, whether they are in a valley or a mountaintop or whatever tomorrow's season brings, our prayer is that our eyes will not be attuned to circumstance looking for the invisible God, but instead our eyes will look to the Son, for he truly is the image of God. He is the one in whom
0: you were pleased for your fullness to dwell. And We make our prayer in his name. Amen.